Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Hello and welcome. Yes, we've got monsters, they murder, and they confess. Except maybe not all of them do. There's only one element missing and that's a serial killer whisperer. And that's where we welcome Amanda Howard. Hello, Amanda. Hello, Robert. That was certainly a different sort of intro. I just thought I'd try to mix it up a bit. (laughs) Don't want to be same-same. You know what I'm like. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This week we're profiling John Norman Collins, the killer responsible for the Michigan murders. Yeah, so this is a really interesting case. Um, I actually know an author who's who's done a lot of research on this case, so that was a really good source for me. But um, it's it's just a very different case to what we normally do. He's a serial killer, but he likes to leave a lot of doubt in people's minds. Well, I've got to say there's some doubt in my mind, so it'll be interesting really? to go through that. Yeah, it's very interesting. I look forward to getting your insights in this and... Uh, explaining to me why he's absolutely guilty because he <laughs> does seem to have an answer for everything. Yes, so let's see how how you profile this one, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> That's coming up shortly, but in the meantime, let's get to the news. And Lonnie D. Franklin, the serial killer known as the Grim Sleeper, who was only sentenced to death in 2016, died of natural causes on San Quentin's death row after being found non-responsive on Saturday, March 28th. Franklin had been sentenced for the murders of nine women and a teenager and was called the Grim Sleeper due to the 14-year gap between killings that had police believing it was two different killers until Franklin was discovered by genealogy DNA matching. Amanda, I've got to say, I do wonder why they still bother with the death penalty when we've talked about a lot of killers who've actually died of natural causes while waiting on death row. Well, see, the thing is that that they're actually not waiting. They're actually going through appeals and doing all of that legal rigmarole that they can do. So it's basically that they only get a date once they've gone through and exhausted all of their appeals, which can be infinite for for, for some people because they find new information. Um, There's been changes in DNA and all of this sort of stuff that that Mm. they actually keep going through. So they usually die of old age purely because they're still going through the appeals process. But, you know, I really thought that Franklin was going to last a little bit longer than three years. Yeah, indeed. Meanwhile, John Venables, one of the killers of toddler James Bolger, has had his parole hearing delayed due to the coronavirus pandemic. Venables, now 38 years old, was sent back to prison for the possession of child pornography and had been boasting to other inmates that he would be out very soon. However, along with thousands of other possible parolees, their cases have been postponed. This is a tricky one, isn't it, Amanda? We are in a pandemic. 
But it means prisoners are losing their ability for due process. Yes, it's quite strange that some countries like Australia, they're actually going through and low-risk um, criminals are actually being released on parole early and yet others, they're actually going the opposite way and in England they're actually putting people on hold and they have to stay in, in jail until things have cleared. So... Um, you know, Venables has literally been in and out of prison many times since he was released at the age of 18. So it's been a long time and it just shows that he isn't showing any remorse. He's just, you know, both He's got issues, again. there's no doubt. It's it's devastating, this, this entire case. There was no one that won in, in this one, that's for sure. Now, remind me, we, because we have profiled this case, mm-hmm. was Venables the one who was more the follower when they killed little James? That's right, yeah. So um, Robert Thompson was the main instigator and and the more violent one, but he has apparently gone into a very stable relationship and has been off the books ever since, whereas Venables has gone the opposite way. And people who want to dig can actually find um, more recent photos of Venables and what his current name is, but we won't do it here. Um, It it, it is out there, especially on Twitter. So uh, he has basically given out info on himself that he continues to get into trouble and this time again was for I think the third time child pornography so Mm. he seems to have had um, a lifelong effect from what these crimes did to him as well. Yeah it's interesting that Robert was the leader but has gone on to rehabilitate in some ways he's in a gay relationship his partner knows everything that's gone on, and it does seem like he's living a, for want of a better word, normal life Mm -hmm. after everything that he inflicted and caused. But um, Venables is something completely different. You know, as the follower, who knows what effect that had on him? Maybe he couldn't live with himself. Maybe it's changed his perception and warped his perception. I don't know, but it's an interesting case of how he's become the bad egg in a way. Yeah, and I, I I think you've hit it on, on the head there. I, it is because I think that he was the follower and so he was traumatised by something that he probably didn't want to do, but once he was involved, there was no turning back. And I think he had that guilt and and there was issues involved in that as a 10-year-old boy that now as a 40-year-old man he's still going to deal with. Mm. We, we, we know of people that have basically been given a... a rough deck of cards basically and 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 they've had to fight through it whereas he seems to have um given over to all of that darkness and it's just sort of consumed him you know child porn he's had assault charges he's really become that bad egg and it must be a hell of a thing to grow up knowing you're one of the most hated people in the country Mm -hmm. let alone possibly the planet yes absolutely Cold case detectives have arrested a 43-year-old man over the historical rape of a girl. The man had attacked the girl twice, once in 1994 and again in 1996 in Bathurst in western New South Wales. Amanda, why are we looking at a sexual assault case? Well, it's actually the cold case team that that has found this DNA were actually looking into the Jessica Small case. Now, she was um, a teenager who disappeared in the same area in 1997, which is just a year after this second attack. Her body has never been found, but she's also not the only female that has disappeared in Bathurst around this time. So there's also Janine Bourne who disappeared in 2001 and was never found. So, hang on, are you saying there is an uncaught serial killer? 
Well, I've been watching Bathurst for about 20 years now, just watching because there is a possible serial killer in in Bathurst and there is a few other girls that have disappeared around the same time and and there's been several assaults. And the disappearance of Janine Vaughan is actually being looked at as a possible police officer being the killer. And he was also, yeah, and he was also part of the investigation into her disappearance. He led the investigation until it was taken off him. So, you know. But nothing's been proven at this stage? uh, He's been arrested. So okay. he's, he's been released several times and there's been several other um, investigations on him. But there is a lot of infinite information about Janine Vaughan's uh, disappearance and the police officer that was sort of stalking her a little. And we obviously, um, everyone is entitled to due process. So mm-hmm. we will uh, we will follow this one. And as there are new developments, we will bring them to you right here on Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions. In the meantime, don't forget our Patreon page exists. While you're inside with nothing to do, Monsters Who Murder is still here for you. There's our whole back catalogue on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash mwm. Confessions. In a moment, our psychological profile on John Norman Collins. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment. You can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And Robin Robbo. Media executive Rob McKnight. Something brand new is coming to your social media feed. Big Brother winner Ben Norris. This is something bold and informative with a side of humour. And journalist David Robbo Robinson. It's truly going to be something different. Ben Robin Robbo Show starts April 20. Go to tvblackbox.com.au slash BRR for more information. It's a Ben Robin Robbo, Ben Robin Robbo, Ben Robin Robbo Show. Well, this week our psychological profile is on John Norman Collins, the killer responsible for the Michigan murders. Collins had murdered several young women and girls between 1967 and 1969. The victims were all kidnapped, beaten, raped and assaulted before being murdered and mutilated. He was sent to prison for one murder, but is believed to be responsible for a further six murders. Here is a news report from Action News from 1969. Several of the victims have been strangled. Two were shot in the head. Several have been stabbed. They all had brownish hair. Their bodies placed in grotesque positions, and apparently no effort was made to conceal them from early discovery. All but one of the girls was either nude or partially disrobed. At least three and possibly four had been sexually molested. Each of the girls died on a rain-soaked night in the desolate fields outside of Ann Arbor. Amanda, that sets the scene, but there are plenty of similarities they mention, but also some things like the ways in which they were killed. Why did he stab some but strangle others? 
Yes, it's quite strange for a serial killer to have um, different MOs, but it seems to be that he likely just chose what was convenient to him. Some of these victims were killed inside, some of them were killed outside, so you're more likely to spend your time and use equipment that you have available. Uh, For someone who is organised like he is, this is actually very strange for him to shoot, strangle and stab. But it was more about the crime of opportunity. He was ready to go most of the times, but some Sometimes there wasn't. And, in fact, one of the victims now may actually be someone else's um, kill. Ah, now that's an interesting development. So is it perhaps possible that he's been blamed for killings he didn't do? It's certainly sounding that way. Well, yeah, there was actually one victim that that we will talk about um, that was left in a forest and he claims that he had nothing to do with that case. And DNA has actually suggested um, that she may have been killed by someone else, but because he was never charged with with that case, he sort of can't be exonerated for something that he wasn't actually charged with. Is that what happens, though, when a serial killer is caught Um, A lot of unsolved murders tend to be thrown at them and police looking to be able to wrap up some cases. Oh, it happens far too often. You know, we've seen Henry Lee Lucas. They did that with him. Uh, It looks like that they're doing it now with Samuel Little, you know, Ivan Malat. He, you know, literally Ivan Malat killed every single unknown (laughs) killing in this country. Yeah, we've certainly heard about him uh, uh, theories that he did murders up on the northern beaches, which is so far away from where he was operating from. Um, so yes, it's a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? It is, and and, and I, I find it very sloppy when they think you know oh, we'll just close the book and say you know all of these happen in, in the same area. It has to be the same guy. Mm. I mean, even. Uh, 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 when Ed Kemper was killing, there was another set of serial killer at the same time and Kemper actually hand himself in because he didn't want to get done for all of the others because the others were sloppy and he liked his being <laughs> neat and clean. You know, and literally that's why he hand himself in because they had linked them all together and he said, no, 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 I'm, I'm one of the serial killers but there's someone else you need to catch too. And they did. But, you know, it, it, it seems to be that they like to deny that there's a serial killer, but at the same time they like to say that one person's done 12 killings when they did two, you know. Yes. Well, Ed, uh, he's got a, he takes pride in his work. Um, <laughs> look, Collins was interviewed on Kelly and Company in 1988 about his life and the crimes. When asked to explain his childhood, this is what he said. I was always out on my bike playing sports someplace. I'd go from baseball to basketball to football. I think that's the only thing that got me through high school. My mother said if I didn't get good grades, I couldn't play sports. So that's probably the only reason I even graduated. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. It's like trigger fire response there, Amanda. It is. He, he believes that this is a harmless question, so he's happy to answer it. But he's also just putting that seed in there that he's a victim. You know, if I didn't do well at school, I wasn't allowed to play sports. You know, and yet he's actually quite an, an intelligent killer. But it is... A strange fact because when he starts talking later, you'll see that this sort of conversation is very, very different to what he normally does. But it's because he saw this as an innocent question that he thought, yeah, I can answer this one and I don't have to think about it. It shows Mm. what he's like naturally answering to what we're about to see is very, very different. Well, which is interesting because he does change the way he answers when asked about his mother. And there are several real-time pauses in here that we've left in so you can get a feeling of how he responded. Did you love your mother? Very much. Were you close? Mm Mm-hmm. She came up just before she died. She left the hospital. 
to come up here because of what these people did in not allowing us to be together in, in the hospital. And she came up here, she spent two days up here, and I had to literally carry her up to those gates up there, and then an officer carried her out to the car. And, uh, Take your time. After she died, John, did things change? Did you change? Yeah, I think so. How? I don't know, I just became more withdrawn. Didn't want to see anybody? Huge change. Now, this part was actually towards the end of the interview, but we've played at the beginning for chronological clarity. Amanda, explain to me what you're seeing here. I'll, I'll go into his body language further later, but here he actually sits back in his chair for the very first time. He wants distance between him and, and the woman who's interviewing him. You know, He's actually attempting to show grief, but there's actually more anger than anything else. He's clenching his jaw. He's refusing to make eye contact. Like... He will talk openly about anything else, but this seems to be that tough question to him. You know, he was happy to talk about his childhood when it was just focused on him, but now talking about his relationship with his mother who died, it's sort of saying, well, you know, she may not have died if I wasn't in hospital, you know, that this is what they did to me. Like, they're the words he uses, that, you know, that they prevented us from talking because I was here and, and she wasn't allowed to come in and see me. But he just seems to be angry more than anything else. But it seems to be because he wasn't allowed to continue this relationship with his mother and this is an important relationship to him. Why is it that he struggles to talk about his family life? What was that like? Well, he actually had a horrible childhood. You know, by the time he was three, he'd actually had three paternal figures in his, his life. His birth father, um, who pretty much left as soon as he was born. He's the youngest of three children and um, the father would abuse them all. He was an alcoholic and he used to beat them. So the mum was kind of quite happy that he left. Um, but then she moved in with a second man um, who was, again, an abusive alcoholic and would beat her and the children. And then a third man come along who actually adopted Collins and his siblings, but like the other two, was a similar man, a, an abusive alcoholic. And, mm. you know, here is someone who um, wanted that paternal father figure and found these horrible people that sort of taught him that this is the way that women are, are, are treated. And he would actually go on and be quite abusive in in relationships himself and he would end up doing um thefts from friends in in the fraternity he was part of um purely because he just assumed that if you want something you go just take it and yeah. and you come at it with violence you know he was actually kicked out of school for the thefts and the girls that he dated said that he was sexually aggressive and violent so it it's no no wonder he he became like that when he grew up with that mm. sort of of environment it's interesting, we talked about the fact he was rapid fire on the first question about his childhood, but then was completely different in tone for his second answer about his mother. And I just wonder, could that be because he's been asked about his childhood so many times and it's just, 
you know, sometimes when people are telling their story over and over again, it becomes almost a script. And, and I've seen this happen with victims as well, you know, where at, at one point they stop having emotion when they're answering these questions, you know, whether it be about their their murdered child or, or whatever, because they've told the story so many times that when they're telling it, it has that emotional separation. But maybe he hasn't been asked that often about his mother and it triggered something in in him. Is that possible? Well, yeah, I think I think that's what has happened here. He was one of those people that actually refused to do a lot of interviews. Um, but in in this television program that happened, there was others that had got involved in his case and had talked to him about it. But it seems to be that this question about his family life had almost come, you know, from the field for him mm. because, because he'd answered it like, yep, yep, I had to get good grades so I could play sports. But then it's like, how was your relationship with your mother? And instantly he was taken to a place of power pain and anger mm. so it is like that there is blame there but also loss because she did die of cancer um but at the same time that there is this as you said it's like a script that they kind of know what they have to say and we are going to see that more in this interview that he comes out with these things that you know he has said a thousand times before mm. because he keeps answering these with you know this evidence that evidence as long as it proves his case doesn't go against it well, one of the first questions he is asked about is, in fact, the final victim. John, did you kill Karen Subineman? No, I never met Karen Subineman. I never picked her up on my bike. Never took her to my uncle's house. Doesn't it bother you being called a serial killer? Yes, it does. It's bad enough being convicted of one thing that you didn't do without being labelled for something that you haven't done. See, I think what happened was... After I was arrested, the media was willing to accept what the police said, and the police would, who would uh, candidly see, not have their name mentioned in the article would say things like, you know, well, we don't, we can't prove that he did it, but we know he did it, and the media has picked up on this for 19 years, and all it did was take the monkey off of their back and put the monkey on my back. He really answers that in a roundabout way. Yeah, it's it's not as direct as his other questions were, which is why I liked to do this this way. You know, but he does stop and start and he does change his words. Um, I played this a few times when I first heard it and I think he almost has a speech impediment here that doesn't seem to show up any other time. So it's concerning that this final victim, which is the one that he was actually charged and, and found guilty of, is the one that he has the most trouble answering. Mm. So, you know, it just says that there's a lot going on there and he's not impressed with the term serial killer, but none of them are. Most of them hate it. That's interesting. Is it because they hate being labelled? Yeah, and, um, I mean, we can go into the whole labelling theory. If if you tell a child that they're bad, they're likely to be bad. And, and there's all of that um, theoretical providence behind it but what we're actually often seeing is that most of these serial killers because i do pose this question to a lot of them they will either joke about it claim their innocence or they will get angry so there's three different ways that they answer and so him going around about he's furious about it because he claims his innocence but um it seems to be a label that's worse than being called a killer or a you know sexual deviant or a rapist mm. or anything some of them hate it so much and he's one of those 
Well, he's asked about how residents were living in fear at the time, knowing a serial killer was on the loose, and his answer is quite strange. You know, that whole Ann Arbor area at that time was going crazy. They were getting frantic. I was concerned. Were you? I would walk fraternity brother's girlfriend's home. I walked a fellow's wife home from class, went into her apartment, checked her apartment, sat with her until her husband got home. Oh, what a lovely Samaritan. Helping out his friends, wives and girlfriends. Um, you're impressed with that answer, but you heard something, didn't you? Yeah, I did. You know, of course he's walking his friend's girlfriend's home. You know, this is almost an alibi. So this is him telling her that if he was so bad, well, why didn't he kill all of these as well? You know, it's it's the devil hiding in plain sight. We have a person who's saying, well, I have proof that I walked people home. I was alone with them. I sat inside their homes with them. You know, if I was a kill, uh, if I was a serial killer, surely I would have killed them as well. And no, this is the exact same thing. He's showing his nice side. So when people are then interviewed about him, they go, "No, he's nice. He's shy. You know, he was he was good to walk my girlfriend home." So really, if he was a killer, why isn't my girlfriend dead? But it's almost like that these are practice attempts for him. This is mm. him saying, "Well." If I walk them home, how far can I push things before things go awry? How far can I take them before they start to stop trusting me? And so he does this. They're, they're basically cold attempts at trying to murder without going through to that stage. Something I always find unusual is how well serial killers know their prosecutors. You know, David Carpenter said a similar thing. Here Collins is answering about the pressure put on police to find the killer. Governor Milliken, the day before I was arrested, put the state police in charge and told them to call in the FBI. This upset Sheriff Harvey, this upset Prosecutor William Dell Hay, this upset the Ypsilanti State Police, this, this upset the uh, Ann Arbor local police, because everybody was working against each other rather than working together. And then the next day I was arrested. So he's blaming the different factions for his supposed wrongful arrest. That is a great theory. And, you know, we've, we've, we, we do know that there is often pressure on police forces to find a killer when they're out there terrorising people. Yeah, and like he's saying here, and as you said, it's it's a very good theory. There's all these different police departments. You know, there's the feds, there's the sheriffs, there's the state police. There's all these different groups who are, who have the same agenda, but they all want to be the person. They want to be the man who walks on the moon first. They want to be in charge and say, we caught him, it was us. You know, you've got to think of Obama standing there and saying, yeah, we got him. You know, it's this sort of information that they all will fight against each other and so things get missed things get put together to make the case fit and so this is what he's doing here i find him convincing in some <laughs> ways and I'm, I'm intrigued the fact that he will not admit to it because we're not at this point where someone is uh he's now what 70 something yes he is yeah about 72 i think yeah um still in jail has never admitted to it so you know, either a innocent man has been found guilty, and there's not to say this is a clean skin. He obviously had some issues. But the question is, what if they did get the wrong person? Well, there's been evidence that's been brought up, and we'll see the other side of the story too. I'm not going to let him tell us everything when there's other stuff that we will bring forward. But he is going to try this, but he's only going to talk about what helps his case, not what hinders oh, it. 
Yeah. But why would he do anything else? But have a listen to what happens when the host tries to call him out. You were identified as okay. the fellow that was on that motorcycle okay, when, when Karen when, left that wig shop. When the police came and she and the lady that she was working with did a composite. Now this is part of the truth, I mean part of the uh, transcripts. And the descriptions that they couldn't get together, they couldn't agree on the hair. Now this lady is a beautician. This is what she does. This is, what she, this is how she makes her livelihood, cutting hair. And she said that the man on the motorcycle had curly hair. She stood by that. She had said that her and her husband had been out several days earlier looking at bikes that was the exact same bike as she saw the person on. And those were 350 and 450 Hondas with square mirrors. I had a triumph with a round mirror. You know, it's interesting because he starts answering her question before she's even finished asking it. Like, he's prepped and ready to go. He's like, yeah, I know what you're asking. Here we go. Da, 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 da. This is the script that you actually talked about before. This is him knowing what he wants to get a, a, across. And, you know, like we said, David Carpenter did a very similar thing. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about this. Now, the interesting part about this interview is that it was going to be live on TV. And he said, no, I want to do it as a pre-record. So this is why. Because if they were live on TV, he could have butted out or talked over the top and really gone for broke. But by doing it this way, they can actually pick and choose what they want to hear from him. So he actually lost out by doing that. But he knows what he wants to answer That's and he knows what so things he wanted to do. He chose to go the pre-record when he actually could have taken control of the whole narrative by going live. Well, he didn't know if they had done it live, if they could have gone for broke the other way too. So uh, you've got to yes. think about it that way because he could have said, well, I will control this like David Carpenter did in his, but at the same time he would have then also lost that as well, that he wouldn't have had, had the control. So it was a, a fine line. So by doing this he knows that they can edit it any way they want, but he also knows that he will get across his answers even before she asks them. Mm. Well, look, then he goes into very minute detail in that part, didn't he? Very minute. Yeah, I mean, and this is what they do. They go over every detailed nuance, you know, anything that they believe will help them with a retrial because they hope that there's someone out there that might end up being their next lawyer, you know, part of their next appeal. There's people out there that will listen and take on these. I mean, the whole Innocence Project was begun purely because the lawyers and, and law enforcement weren't listening to these people. And so, you know, basically laypersons actually took it over. The ge uh, the genealogy DNA, same thing. It wasn't law enforcement that started this. It was people that were doing tracking because this is what they did on ancestry sites and this is what mm. happens. Cyber sleuths and, and, and crime and web sleuths, they, they have, you know, raised that, th these cases and this is what he's hoping to do. He's hoping that he is going to plant these seeds with these detailed pieces of information that will go and make people like you go, hang on a sec, maybe he is right. <laughs> and that's how it Are you starts. saying I'm a sucker, Amanda? Well, you, you know what I think about most of these? I don't, I don't trust a word that comes out, out of their mouths most of the time. <laughs> well, look, he goes on with even more long-winded explanations. I remember correctly, didn't she? And she wore glasses and she used them for distance and she didn't have, have them on at the time. And then... Prior to the lineup, Sheriff Harvey took a half a dozen pictures down and asked her to identify these pictures, and she couldn't. She said, I can't, I, I'm not sure. 
He said, well, this is the man we arrested for the murder. Now, that's inflammatory, okay? The next morning, they do the same thing. Another officer comes down there and shows another half a dozen pictures of me. He said, this is a man we've arrested for the murder. Can you, will you identify him? She says, well, I'm not sure from these photographs. So then they hold a line up without my attorney present. They pull me in. I'm the last one in out of five people who I might as well have been put in with four other women because there was no resemblance to anyone that even fit the sketch at all. And I tried to get a copy of the photographs that they had taken, but they said they couldn't find them because it was, it was, it was really a comedy of errors. They took me out from the last one. They put me right in the middle and as if to say, you know, if you can't identify him from the photographs we showed you, here he is. And they did all this without my attorney even being present. I've got to say, he seems to be building a strong case for reasonable doubt. Yeah, and I mean, he, he is trying his best. He's, he's trying to get out there and, and get people to understand what he's saying. But, I mean, I've also seen this in, like, the 1940s film Witness Fad, the prosecution, or whenever <laughs> it was filmed, which is a um, brilliant film. I don't want to give too much away because there is people out there who haven't seen it. This is a, 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 a key part. But... You know, they use this as trickery in, in court cases too. Oh, well, she didn't have her glasses on, so she couldn't have been sure about the person. You know, in, in Witness for the Prosecution, she couldn't hear very well. You know, how could she be sure? And this is what they do. This is this reasonable doubt that they want to plan. But um, And in this case, there was actually a big issue because some of the jurors actually went and tried to, to do this themselves and, and, and conduct experiments. And there's been other cases where they done the same thing and the whole thing's been thrown out and it is an issue that does come up but you know the fact that she didn't have on her, her glasses she was inside a store and he was outside I mean it's not really that far regardless of, of what's her sort of eyesight um, but he doesn't talk about here that there was someone else there that did spot him who didn't need glasses <laughs> see so you got to get all the information uh, uh, sure uh, how accurate are eyewitnesses because I feel like it was just a few weeks ago we talked about how there was a criminology class, I think it was, yep. and the uh, 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 robber came in, stole a bag, and these students had to explain who they saw. And yep. remind us what happened. Well, they all tried to demonise this person. They wanted to make them appear to be a bad person by making them more ugly than they actually are. And there is sometimes videos out there and you are watching something to know what's going on but you miss something quite important and they say to you, like, you know, about 10 years ago I think there was a thing on the internet and they asked you to talk about how many times a basketball gets passed and everyone watches that but literally a rap dancing um, bear walks through the scene and you don't see it because that's not what you're watching. <laughs> so it just proves that it doesn't always happen. Um, you know, but witnesses, that they, they can be a help, but they can also be um, a hindrance. Uh, with this case, I actually went and did a couple of article research projects because that's what I do and people love to, to know my sources. So um, the, the APA, which is the American Psychology um, Association, they actually said that if a witness is provided a lineup and they know that the suspect is definitely in the lineup, they are more likely to attempt to give an answer and they will actually overcompensate if they're unsure and they will get given an answer regardless. But if they're given several lineups and said, he may or may not be in any of these, 
they will likely give a more honest answer and say, look, I don't think he's there. But if they're mm. told, here's five people, he's definitely one of these, it is going to cause people to make a guess. You know, gotcha. and, and and the NCBI actually takes it further and said that uh, obviously when a witness is, is brought to see a suspect this, as soon after the crime as possible is better than later. But at the same time, people that are accurate and say, yeah, it's definitely him, it's definitely him, they're actually not accurate with their answers than those who actually go, you know, I think it might be him. Mm. Saying that they're definitely sure doesn't predict that they're actually right. Gotcha. Well, let's head back to the interview where Collins is asked a very interesting question. Now, you knew that they were looking for you. They were closing in on you for three days before they arrested you. Why didn't you run? I didn't do it. When I got back to Sunday and they questioned me for those three hours and then they brought me back, I had every intention of cleaning out my my apartment of all excess of motorcycle parts, which Arnie Davis knew about because he was a participant, okay? So he uh, he knew what the box was, and I took it out and I dumped the box. But there was no shoes, there was no... I, I, I really wasn't worried about... There was motorcycle parts, Yeah, I was worried about the trailer, I was worried about the motorcycle. I was not... I was scared, don't get me wrong. I was definitely scared because they told me, well, you know, we have a witness that you were on a motorcycle and she was on your motorcycle at a, at a wig shop. And I said, you know, and then this, they said this as they were bringing me back. I said, well, why are you bringing me back home then? You know? And had I been guilty, I definitely would have left. That would have been an indicator for me to leave. And I definitely would have left. Isn't that a fair point, that if he was guilty, he would have gone on the run? Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, this wasn't the first time that he was arrested, actually. This is the second time. So he was actually arrested earlier on and he decided that, um, you know, that they they don't have anything on him then. Why would he believe that they had anything on him now? Uh. So this is what they do. I mean, Paul Bernardo did this. He literally gave DNA when they were looking for the Scarborough rapist and he continued to rape and kill, you know, because they assume that they're going to get away with it. I mean, there is another case that we're going to do in a couple of weeks of on, on Colin Pitchfork where he actually got someone else to give DNA so he could continue to, to kill and rape. So they, they really believe that they're smarter than the police. And as he, he said, there's all of these different groups looking for him and they're becoming like Keystone Cops. He has no um, confidence in them to find him. And if they've arrested him, put him in lineups and he's been able to walk away from that he sees that this is what's going to happen again and the witnesses had actually in this case been tainted because a friend of Collins was a police officer and had talked to some of the girls who had had that had seen him and were witnesses and he actually believed it could have been him because he drove the same sort of motorcycle that he that he actually showed them photographs and said is this the guy you saw not in an official lineup so they've been mm. tainted they've been shown a photo and then said I think this is the guy. This is before he, he he took it to his superiors who who then took it further. You know, and this is just after the last killing. So there this does bring up a lot of doubt that didn't actually happen. And so when police are showing them and taking these witnesses through the lineup, they've already got this guy's face in their in their mind's eye. Well, that supports his theories. 
Well, it does kind of, but there's also a lot of parts of this that go against him. So there's reason that he's in jail. (laughs) Now, in that section, he also referred to a box he had thrown out. What was that all about? Well, apparently a couple of days after um, the murder of Karen, he was seen by his roommate taking a box out and he just said, oh, I'm just going to throw out out some garbage. Now, Collins claims that it was uh, spare bike parts that he didn't need, but the roommate claims that he saw a shoe and some women's clothing, so like a female shoe. And right. so he believes that these were actually souvenirs that after the police had sort of arrested him and let him go, that he started to get rid of this stuff before they came to search because if the heat was on, he would have needed to make sure that he didn't have this sort of evidence left in his house. Mm. Well, then Collins was arrested on July 30, 1969. He had become a suspect when his uncle, David Leake, a state police officer, arrived home from a holiday and found that things in his basement of his house were moved around. Collins had been house-sitting for his uncle and the officer alerted his superiors who arrested Collins. Why is this important? Well, now we're going for the evidence. Okay, so what we have here is that on Karen's body and in her underwear was tiny little trimmed hairs, lots of hairs that wasn't from her. In this basement where where items had been moved and tools had been moved and there was blood found and things like that, as well as um, some some parts that were assumed to be blood but were actually um, varnish on the floor. But these tiny hairs, um, when the team come to check the basement, like was asked, um, you know, why are there all these tiny hairs here? And he says, well, my wife cuts our children's hair in the basement. So these tiny hairs were then matched to the hairs found on Karen's body. So Ah. Karen's body had been in this basement. So even if Collins claims he's innocent, his the victim that was killed was in the basement. He was the only person that had used that house during that time. So that's mm. there's some evidence that he won't talk about. Mm. Well, of course, Collins continued to protest his innocence. Here again on the Kelly and Company program, he goes on a different tangent. We'll have people in the audience on Monday who will say that they've been out with you. Quite possibly. I've, I've had people in some here tell me good. that I've dated Some will their say you're wonderful and the others will say they know you killed a Karen Sue. That's something that they'll have to decide for themselves. I'm not out to change anybody's mind. For the 19 years, you've only heard one side of it. I'm giving them another perspective. Not the truth, but another perspective. An interesting choice of words. Exactly. And see, for a clever guy, that's what he's saying. He's not going to say to you, I'm innocent. He doesn't say it out. Like, yes, he did say before, I I didn't kill her. I didn't know her. But he's not saying here, I'm giving you the truth. He's saying, I'm giving you another perspective because he wants to plant a seed. He doesn't want to come out and just go, I didn't do this. This is all bullshit. He wants to get that conversation happening. And so he has his script that he knows he wants to say. So then people get involved and go, oh, okay, now how about that? How come Mm. the witnesses had seen photos before he was arrested? How come he's then in a lineup with people who don't look like him? He's using those sorts of words to make people start to think beyond that, oh, well, he must be guilty because he's in jail. This is what he's doing. He's very, very clever with his word choice. Yeah, he certainly is. Well, the police had replaced one of the bodies with a mannequin, hoping the killer would return to the scene. This is how Collins described it. Karen Sue Bynum, I believe, was missing on a Wednesday. 
On Friday, the body was found, and a mannequin was placed where the body was. That Friday, I left with a couple of fraternity brothers and their wives and went up to Ortonville bike riding for the whole weekend. We left Friday afternoon. Now, they found the body in the afternoon. They put a mannequin there, and they put a stake out there. Now, shortly after midnight, it was raining. A person came down, down the ravine, came up to the mannequin, touched the mannequin, and fled. It was raining, so the excuse was that their, uh, that their microphone equipment and the radios weren't, weren't functioning properly, and they couldn't, you know, catch the person. We got the dogs, they tried to chase them with dogs, they couldn't find them, and I was up in Ortonville at the time. Now, had they caught that man, I don't think I would be here right now. He has an answer for everything. Yeah, and he's had 19 years to think of this point and to twist mm. it so it suits him, you know. But you have to remember, he, as I said, he's only focusing on the information that helps his case. You know, he talks about the woman who misidentified his car, he, um, his, his bike. Uh, he, he talks about the woman who misidentified his bike. You know, he didn't mention the shop assistant who was able to identify him correctly. You know, he, he's, he talks about this unknown person who saw a body. Now, this is the body that has recently come back with DNA to suggest it may be someone else in this one case. So it's not going to help his case, but he thinks if he's not guilty for one of the cases, it should bring reasonable doubt in the one case that he was charged with. But, you know, it doesn't stop him opening this can of worms and then the police go, well, actually, we've got all of the DNA on the other victims. Let's bring it all out. Well, there came a time that the police actually thought Collins would confess. He became distraught and asked to speak to his mother and lawyer, which was allowed. Then the police spoke to him. This is how Collins explains it. Now, Amanda, there is something here that you've jumped on. So, everyone, just listen very carefully. He called me up one day and he took me up into the, the, uh, the uh, lawyer's room and my attorney was supposed to have been there and Mr. Ryan was my attorney at the time. He was really upset and so was Prosecutor Dalham. And he told me, he says, John, he says, uh, he gave me the old talk to me like his father's son thing and told me about what Jackson was like and that I could participate in athletics and this and that when I was there. And that he would give me a steak dinner to help me make up my mind as to whether or not I would confess and help him clean up the books. He said they couldn't do any more to you for one murder than they could for the seven so murders. Really and it you. would help him immensely and be a big feather in his cap if I would confess to these to help him clean up the books and he would give me a steak dinner. And I wanted that steak dinner. <laughs> you know, I came real close to saying, I'll tell you what you want, whatever you want to hear. You know, because, uh, you know, I was in bad shape. Amanda, you have a big smile on your face there. <laughs> so let's listen to the last bit again, which made you smile. And I wanted that steak dinner. <laughs> you know, I came real close to saying, I'll tell you what you want, whatever you want to hear. You know, because, uh, you know, I was in bad shape. What are you hearing? Well, he drops a smile because he's messed up. So he said, I, I will tell you, he wanted to say, I will tell you what you want to know, not I'll tell you what you want to hear. He was going to say something different and he fell Why over Why is it. that so important? Because I could see myself saying, I'll tell you what you want to know. 
You know, like, uh, no, I guess no is different to what is. you want to hear. Yeah, it is. And that's what he was going to say. And he was laughing and joking and he relaxed and he didn't think ahead about what he was going to say and he stuffs up there. And literally this is the moment that he almost gave it all up to this um, interviewer. So we always talk about body language yep. and there's an important part here too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're looking at a guy who is really superficially nice. You know, he makes a fantastic, great first impression. You know, he's quite intelligent. He's personable. He's not unattractive. You know, he's he's not like Henry Lee Lucas or Charles Manson, you know, and he uses this as part of his bravado. So he would pick up girls often. He was able to pick up his victims quite easily. This last victim, Karen Sue, she was literally coming out of a wig store and he picked her up and she had said to the uh, to the girl behind the counter, you know, I'm either the stupidest girl or the smartest girl. You know, I've come in here and bought a wig that I don't want or need but, you know, I decided to go for it and now I've decided to say yes to this guy, who, a stranger, who has just picked me up because this is what he was able to do. As we say so often, they're not monsters. Mm. You know, they, oh, they don't look personable. like monsters. Yeah, exactly. But what happened was, um, though he had many sexual es- escapades, um, he was also sexually violent. And so girls who did date him longer than once um, found him to be very dominating and controlling. But this is behind closed doors. This is not mm. what he shows people. And he actually had a disgust uh, for women when they were on their periods. So um, he would actually sort of kick them out of his house if he wanted to have sex and they were menstruating you know and here he is being interviewed by a beautiful attractive woman and they're literally face to face and he actually leans forward in his chair as close as he possibly can to her keeps eye contact almost the entire time and like many killers that we see he is sitting extremely still so he he barely moves and it actually takes watching this for almost an hour before we even see that he actually has handcuffs on and it's only Mm. very much towards the end of 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 like the hour of of the program that he actually lifts those into camera sight he'd sat so still and with this moment that he's just done where he's stuffed up the words there's actually a moment of agitation so there's a hint that he resents himself for what he's just done so there's an agenda here he wants people to hear his side of the story and he realized that he just let his guard down and almost slipped up Now, you mentioned menstruation was disgusting to him, and this is a key clue in one of the murders, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jane Jane Mixer, now she was the third victim, and she was the only one that wasn't sexually assaulted. But this is more likely because she was having a period, because when she was found, Mm. her killer had actually exposed her and left the pad out in, in... absolutely on on display so this was like a final degradation like this is disgusting you know she's dirty and filthy and this is why now if he so freely wants to talk about his case and protest his innocence which he seems to be wanting to do here it is strange that he didn't testify in court but here's his explanation i don't know i'm not really sure i'm not sure mr lewis i didn't think i would be strong enough or if they would bring up the, the business about the trailers and, and the uh, Would you take the stand the now? Yes, I would. I, I really wanted to take the stand. Who would stand. you like for your new, your attorney? You thought about it? Who I would want? I don't know. Neil's pretty familiar <laughs> with it. Would you have him again? Sure. I thought Neil was very Did confident. he advise you not to take the stand? No. 
um, we discussed all the avenues and the trial was so prolonged and that we were looking at the jury during the scientific evidence and there were times when the jury was just dozing off and they thought that the, the uh, prosecution hadn't presented their case, hadn't won the case and that there was no reason for it, that the people were tired of being sequestered and that they didn't prove their case. Really? Yeah, yeah. This is how you say nothing and still talk a lot. Um, <laughs> I think I'm an expert at that too most of the time. But, um, you know, he really didn't answer anything there. You know, he claims he would have taken the stand, but he had the opportunity and he didn't take the stand. You know, he claims... He purely didn't take the stand because everyone was getting bored because of the evidence that was being provided. Really, he was doing a community service. Yeah, I mean, really, but at the same time, <laughs> by him saying that he would have his lawyers again, he cannot use that in an appeal saying that he didn't have, have proper representation. So he's just stuffed that, that part of the appeal by saying he would use the same people. Granted, one of his lawyers has passed away. But um, he's, he's just he's just long-winded bullshit. Just basically, yeah, I didn't take the stand. I would have, but I didn't because it was boring. <laughs> well, now the perfect way to prove your innocence is to claim that the murders continues, and Collins did just that. Or did he? The murders stopped when they arrested you no, and took didn't. you in. And it would be similar... The Stop. No, they didn't. I don't think they did. And I don't think you one don't person... You don't think they did? Tell me. Well, from what I understand, they didn't. If any reporter had ever followed up and checked the police files or the hospital records or followed the news articles after the trial, they would find that there were still murders. There's still murders. I just showed you the article in the paper. There are still murders going on. Yes, but shortly murders. after that, those types of murders stopped. Okay, now what do you mean by types? They referred to these as co-ed killings. Now, there's at least three or four of them that weren't co-eds. So even that is a fallacy. Well, they said that there some, was a similarity. Some, there, was all, okay. there was always sexual abuse. There there was, were, there no, was, no, there wasn't. No, there wasn't. Some people... Four were, out of seven, I believe. Oh, okay, well, okay, that okay. shows a dissimilarity. If, you, if, if, if you're robbing stores... You're going to follow the same thing that's working for you. You're not going to shoot one person, stab another, strangle another, bludgeon another. I mean, some are raped, some aren't raped, some are fully clothed. Or an object some was stuck up the vagina. That sounds like the Boston Strangler thing. It could be copycat killings. You know, it's something that, you know, there's no way that I would be convinced that one person ever did that. And it would be similar to uh, a house on a corner and they're selling crack, and then all of a sudden you walk down the street, say you've been walking down the street for every day for a year, and people going in and out selling crack, and all of a sudden you come by and you look in the house and it's empty. Does that mean the crack stopped? No, they just moved to another corner. I need you to unpack that for me. <laughs> it is so vague, and for someone who has been going into minute details about car parts and witnesses not wearing glasses and everything, he's suddenly gone vague because he can't prove that the killings did stop because we all know they did. And so he's saying, oh, but why aren't they checking hospital files? Because there could have been a woman who might be in her teens that was sexually assaulted and turned up a hospital. He's not going, oh, well, how about this victim? How about this victim? How about this victim? If he had that detail, he would have provided it. But no, he goes to jail, these killings stopped. Yes, the co-ed killings has been a name used for, you know, many other cases, including Ed Kemper. But when it comes to the point of him trying to prove that 
the killer is still out there, he can't. And this is mm. what happens. You know, he starts talking about, you know, a crack house down the street. He talks about the Boston Strangler. He goes on to all of these different possibilities, but it's all vague. It's not saying, yeah, but how about, you know, such and such that was killed a month after I was I went to prison and all of this. This is his point that he should have had ready to go and he can't because it proves bullshit. <laughs> well, a twist to this case is that in 2005, another suspect, Gary Earl Lieterman, was found guilty of the murder of victim Jane Louise Mixer after DNA fingered him for the crime. Collins remains in prison. He is now 72. Amanda, I'm confused. <laughs> I'm intrigued. I'm back to thinking he is guilty, but I am impressed that he can provide some doubt. You know, like he, the way he stuck to his story. This has been a fascinating case. Would have been good for Judge Rob on our cold <laughs> case collection. But, uh, yeah, Judge Rob would have been confused by this one, I've got to say. That's good to know that. That's good to show that we, we give both sides of the story so everyone can make their own choice. <laughs> All right, we will see you next week on Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. Until then, goodbye. 